The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Hey there, this is Jay Blake Fischera of the Score to Death Radio and Saturday Night Movie Sleepover Podcasts. And I'm also the author of the Score to Death book series. With the Score to Death books, I explored the craft of creating horror film music through detailed interviews with many of the genre's greatest composers. And now I am turning the books into a documentary. Production is already underway, but we really have only just begun. If you're listening to this between September 27th and November 1st of 2022, you can help make the definitive documentary about horror film music a reality. And while you're at it, also pick up some very cool tier rewards. So if you love horror movies and or film music, head over to Kickstarter and support Scored to Death, the dark art of scary movie music. And keep up with the film's progress on social media by following at Scored to Death or at scoredtodeath.com. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Mike Snoonian. I'm Lara Unterstall. And Jen is flying back from Bangor, Maine. She uh, managed to get over the huge fence at Stephen King's house, mm-hmm. bang on the door, and just yell, try this sweater on, horror daddy. And uh, the authorities did let her go, but she was on Losers Club duty all weekend uh, <laughs> up in Bangor for like a horror convention. So uh, she's going to be sitting out tonight. And we are a trio tonight still, though. We have the editor from the Losers Club here. We have Kyle Orozovic to join us. Kyle, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about Thank what you we're going to talk about. Oh, yeah. Thank and you for picking this movie. It is perfect for this month. Yeah, I, I'm so glad we got to watch this. And speaking of, what are we watching today? To- we are watching 2004's Shaun of the Dead. Hell, oh. yes. We're not doing Shaun the Sheep? <laughs> I, I don't even want to discuss That's tomorrow's that. recording. Okay. <laughs> Different show, everybody. No, Shaun of the Dead. This is going to be a really fun one. This falls under our comfort horror umbrella. So for new listeners, listeners, how do we define comfort horror? It is the horror that we find very comforting, that we put on to soothe us. We need a pick-me-up. It can be the horror that scares us, but it tends to be the movies that we kind of go to over and over again. So we're super excited to talk about this one. But before... We discuss why we love this movie. We are going to kind of give you a quick synopsis. So um, Jen would have a great pun here. Yeah. So get so your, so tee up your, <laughs> tee up your cricket bat and, and, and have a pint with your mates. Uh, it's so, time. Fuck a doodle do. This is where the spoilers are going to be. And we are going to put some red in it. So Laura, take it away with a synopsis. 
Hey listeners, through a series of snafus, we do not have a recorded synopsis as of yet, so I am going to step in and do synopsis duties, and I'm going to cheat because we need to get this episode up in time. It's Shaun of the Dead, we know this movie. I'm going to go strictly off the Wikipedia here, so it won't be nearly as funny or clever or smart as what Laura does, but uh, you're stuck with me folks, sorry. So here we go. Synopsis. In Crouch End, London, the electronic salesman Sean has no direction in his life. He is disrespected by colleagues, does not get along with his stepfather Philip, and is dumped by his girlfriend Liz after he fails to make decent plans for an anniversary date. Heartbroken, Sean gets drunk with Ed. Our heartbroken Sean gets drunk with Ed, his slacker best friend at their favorite pub, the Winchester. At home, Sean and Ed's flatmate Pete complains of a bite wound from a mugger and berates Sean into getting his life together. By morning, a zombie apocalypse has overwhelmed London. Sean and Ed are slow to notice until they encounter two zombies in the garden, whom they beat to death with a shovel and a cricket bat and also some, you know, Dire Straits records. They devise a plan to rescue Liz and Barbara, Sean's mother, and then wait out the crisis in the Winchester. They escape in Pete's car and pick up Philip, who has been bitten, and Barbara. They use Philip's Jaguar to pick up Liz and her flatmates, David and Diane. Philip reconciles with Sean before becoming a zombie. Forced to abandon the car and their weapons, the group sneak through their London neighborhood, running into a group led by Sean's friend, Vaughn. After imitating zombies to get to the Winchester through a horde, a fight between Sean and Ed attracts zombies' attention, forcing Sean to lure them away using a, himself as bait. After the group takes refuge inside the Winchester, Sean discovers that the zombies have followed him, and Ed unwittingly attracts them by playing on the pub's fruit machine. Whilst fighting the zombified landlord, Sean discovers that the Winchester rifle above the bar is functional. Barbara reveals she was bitten, and she dies after giving Liz and Sean's relationship her approval. David attempts to shoot Barbara, but Sean stops him, causing the group to argue. Sean accuses David of hating him and being in love with Liz, which Diane admits. Sean, distraught, is forced to shoot Barbara when she becomes a zombie. Zombies break into the pub and devour David. Diane rushes into the horde, brandishing David's severed leg. The zombified Pete appears and bites Ed, and Sean shoots and kills Pete. Sean, Liz, and Ed take cover behind the bar, which Sean sets ablaze. The three take refuge in the cellar. Realizing they only have two bullets left, Sean and Liz contemplate suicide, while Ed elects to be devoured by the zombies. Sean discovers a keg lift that opens out onto the street. Ed volunteers to stay with the rifle as the zombies break in. The British army arrive, gun down the horde, and take Sean and Liz to safety. Six months later, civilization is returned to normal, and surviving zombies are used as cheap labor and entertainment. Liz has moved in with Sean, and Sean keeps a zombified Ed tethered in his shed where they play video games together. Ta-da! Well, that is the synopsis. That is Sean of the Dead. Thank you so much, Lara, for putting that together for us. <laughs> and now we are going <laughs> to... Sorry, I'm sorry. It's we guys got a got it. We got giggles tonight, we folks. Do. Here That's we are. Gig, right. gig, we're giggling. We're so giggling on we, down. 
So now we're going to talk about our feelings check and we're going to talk about our first experience with this movie and how it makes us feel when we watch it. So Kyle, as our guest and as the gentleman who chose this for us, can you talk a little bit about why you chose Shaun of the Dead? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this movie is just a satisfying watch. I remember the first time I saw it, it was actually the summer before my junior year of college. I was at the movies with some friends and we saw the poster in the lobby and all we saw was the name Shaun of the Dead. And I thought it was hilarious because like I had just gotten into zombie movies thanks to, you know, I think the year before it was 28 days later and the Dawn of the Dead remake. And I was just like, Shaun of the Dead. Amazing, amazing title. And because <laughs> I thought, or because I um, looked at it really far away, I thought Simon Pegg looked like the son from Married with Children. And I was like, good for him. That's a great movie. It's going to look fun. But then, you know, I didn't hear anything about it. You know, there wasn't really much of um, online film sites at the time or not, none that I was really reading. And so just kind of forgot about it until I saw a trailer and I was blindsided by the fact that it was a British movie. And I was like, <laughs> I actually felt bad for um, Davis Faustino. I was like, poor guy. It would have been a great movie to be in. Couldn't pull off that accent, though. Couldn't do the Definitely not. accent. You know. I, I do like the thought of this whole movie, but starring the Bundys. Just that's it. That's the concept. Uh, and then, yeah, and then months went by. And I just was like um, trying to get my hands on anything that I could about the movie. Because we were I was in a small town in college. Um, and like we had like one theater about 20 miles away. And it only had like two screens and didn't play anything but the hits. So I figured by the time I'd see the movie, it'd be, you know, on DVD. And back then, you know, they came back, they came out in like a year from when the movie would release. Um, so in that time, I was just reading everything um, and just making up the movie in my head, mostly just um, reading like the quotes page on IMDb <laughs> and just making up and just kind of figuring out what the movie would be like. And, um, and I just, before this, I was actually reading the oral history book you've got read on you by um, Clark Clovis. And he said that um, Edgar Wright had kind of a similar experience with American Werewolf in London. Like his, his parents turned it off like way early. He would try and think about it and then he would just make up the movie in his head. And what he came up was way scarier. And then when I finally saw Shaun of the Dead, I was the opposite because I thought it was actually funnier than what it was on paper. And I just, I fell in love with it. Um, right then and there. And I just became obsessed with the entire crew, the entire movie. And I would uh, watch this movie every night before I went to bed. Once the DVD <laughs> finally came out in college. Can you indulge us a little bit for a moment and talk a little bit about the movie that you wrote in your head before <laughs> seeing this, please just. That was like 20 years ago. I, I can't remember, but just going by the, the quotes, it was, it was so fresh. I'd never, the jokes, I just, they were great on paper and then they were even better in execution. And I was just blown away by it. I was like, I'd never seen anything like this. This was all, this is a whole new world for me. I felt like. And Edgar Wright is such a unique filmmaker. He has a real unique voice in visual language. So yeah, that's just gotta be like, I'm trying to remember being an Edgar Wright virgin. <laughs> yeah, I also love this movie. This is definitely a movie I must have seen for the first time on DVD sometime in the early 2000s, you know, whenever it was circulating. I, I It's one of many movies I don't remember seeing for the first time, but 
Um, loved it. it. It's, you know, I, I love Edgar Wright. I'm still a bigger fan of Hot Fuzz is probably my favorite film of his just in general because it it's so weird and it goes to so many unexpected places. But as far as like a pitch perfect zombie film parody that is still so British and so personal, like this movie knocks it out of the park. And I mean, I just don't even know. There's a, there's a, I've probably mentioned this on the show before, but there is a, um, a, a YouTube channel that I think is called every frame of painting. I'm not actually sure if that they're the ones that are responsible for this video essay, but I'll find it so we can link it in the show notes. It's basically the visual. It's all about the visual language of comedy and how Edgar Wright does it so well and how it was so remarkably different from all the other comedies that were coming out in the early 2000s, where it was basically like the Judd Apatow, two people standing like over the shoulder, over the shoulder, just people talking, talking, talking. This is like his films, and and this is a, a really good example of it, are this synthesis of filmmaking, editing, performance, writing. Like they, he really understands like film, man. Like he did, it's like, it's like, oh shit, you can do this. This is how you can communicate information. Like the get, like even at the beginning, like getting ready in the morning instead, he just, he, he sort of, these things are cliches now, but the like smash cut, smash cut, smash cut to like different things as he gets ready in the morning and how that much, much information is conveyed in a much more interesting fashion. And then like the, the parallel scenes of, of Sean walking through the street before the, the day before the zombie apocalypse and then the following morning and how he's just like completely out of it and doesn't notice anything around him. Like that's so thoughtful. You know, this shit had to be, I, I don't, I, I'm really bad with like film trilogy and this is not, I haven't really read much about the production of this movie, but you can just feel the effort and the planning that went into it. And it's so fun. It's so fun. And it's so funny. And I love, um, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Wait, is that his name? Mm-hmm. Okay, I had a panic attack. Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, like their chemistry is just wonderful. There's definitely a few lines that have not aged <laughs> super well, but I, I forgive it because it's, it is just from the time that it's from. And these characters are so absurd anyway that, you know, it's kind of like, all right. Uh, yeah, love this movie. Yeah, this is a perfect movie. Like, this is as close to perfect as you're going to get. I was fortunate enough to see this in a theater. Um, there's the, like, at the time I lived in uh, Alston, which is basically, like, one of the offshoots of Boston. So we had, like, the Fenway Theater and then, like, the AMC 19, like, right in downtown Boston. And they, to this day, like, not only play all the hits, but they brought in, like, things like High Tension, I remember, played it there i think martyrs played there and Shaun of the dead is one of those films that play there and like to this day like now they bring in a lot of bollywood movies um as that has like kind of grown in popularity so we would be fortunate enough to get these kind of great little offshoot uh movies that we wouldn't have to wait for dvd otherwise so i remember seeing this with like a large group of friends and just this time period of like 2002 to 2005 being one where there was like this great resurgence in zombie movies. You mentioned um, the Dawn of the Dead remake, which I still think is like Zack Snyder's best movie Uh, still to this day holds up and is really enjoyable. Uh, There was uh, 28 days later. And then after this was land of the dead. And it's kind of amazing that 
Romero's return to zombie films would like be the kind of least interesting of the bunch that came out during this time. And it's not that Land of the Dead is a bad movie. It's just that the baton had been passed by this time. And what Edgar Wright and Zack Snyder and Danny Boyle were doing just seemed so much more interesting. Um, and in I, I forget the name of the writer, but like the Walking Dead comic book was out at this point and like what they were doing with like a long form storytelling in the comic at that time during through especially those first uh few dozen issues was just like great stuff and it felt like really fun um so to me this is like the perfect meld of horror and comedy and we've talked a lot on the show about how the two genres share a lot of similarities and how it can be extremely difficult to meld them um Kyle, you mentioned like an American werewolf in London. Like that's my all time favorite movie. And that to Mm -hmm. me is another example of a movie that balances horror and comedy so well. And what really hits me with this movie, especially rewatching it ahead of today's show, I'm never scared when watching this movie. Like I don't find it a particularly scary movie, but what I am is concerned for the characters. Like you feel so much for them and you get to know them all so well. Uh, they just feel very lived in these relationships all feel so lived in that though I'm not scared of the movie, I'm scared for them and what they're going through. And you just want them all to make it through. Uh, and unfortunately most of them don't. Um, the other thing, last thing is like this movie hits on a lot of the themes that, at that time, like oh four, I'm about tw- late twenties at that point, so the same age as Sean and Ed as they're in this movie, and kind of going through a lot of those like uh, late, or, you know, those late period of early adulthood, going through those same crises, and we'll talk a little bit about more of that when we go into the movie, and I do want to dive more into Laura, what you were just talking about as well with like the editing and the visual language of this movie. Cause I think that the editing in this is perfect. I had that here in my notes as well. And I want to dive more into it, but before we do that, let's, let's take a moment and kind of go into the movie itself right here. And Kyle, you kind of put here in your notes, how it's a source of comfort. Like this was the year I'm going to fall asleep to this movie every night. Can you talk a bit about that? I don't tend to watch movies now, like over and over. Like I used to all the time uh, with VHS, especially when I would rent them. Like I would, I would finish the movie and automatically just hit rewind and start the movie over. Like I was like, I rented it. I'm going to get the most out of this movie that I can in the three days that I have it. Um, And so this movie just um, at a certain point, I stopped watching the movie as a story and would just zone in and focus on different things and just kind of see how it all came together. Like, like you were saying earlier, um, those quick zooms into just like normal, like buttering your breakfast and like, why was that so funny? And like, like, Oh, who did that before? Oh, Raimi did that before in evil dead. Oh, let me go, you know, watch evil dead again. And like, Oh, uh, Coen brothers helped edit evil dead one and then you know use what they learned on that on um blood simple like oh let me go rent blood simple and just kind of fall down that rabbit hole and and just it just it was a it was a comfort but also like a gateway 
kind of into other things and just kind of and because there's so many homages in it just trying to figure out everything that they're homaging or parodying and just seeing why it works in this context yeah i uh at, at one point i would have known more of the references but i feel like it's it's even just now it's making me want to go back on one of those journeys and kind of refresh myself on all the things that it's referencing um but what i love about it also is that you don't have to get a single one of those references to still enjoy it as a film and that to me is the perfect way to do these kind of illusions um it's so hard to pull off well and it's pulled off well for every frame of this fucking movie it's it's just great <laughs> yeah also like i mean i think when we do this now when we have these easter eggs now they tend to be very very obvious and mm -hmm. in a way that it detracts you from the movie because you're pulled out of it for a brief moment and you're kind of making these mental notes and connecting all the dots in here, I think it's it's done in such an organic way that you never feel kind of ripped out of the story, uh, which I think is a great, great thing. And the other thing, watching this movie now, picking up on all of the other British character actors that are in this movie yes. and recognizing them and like just realizing what a tight ensemble this is. Like I'm thinking of like Dylan Moran in particular, who starred in Black Books. Uh, which is a um, British comedy that ran for a few seasons about a you know down and out used bookstore that's this wickedly good dry comedy. Uh, Lucy Davis, who was the uh, Pam in the British version of The Office, and there's kind of like a blank and you miss it moment when the two groups meet one another. Um, I'm looking up as well. Martin Freeman Martin is Ray. one of them. But also Matt Lucas, who uh, British comedian, who is also um, in the great one of the hosts of the Great British Bake Off. Like I'm looking in the back, and I'm like, "That's the dude from the British Bake Off who I wish we would replace." <laughs> you know that. Um, Why does everyone hate Matt Lucas so much? <laughs> oh, he's he gives dad jokes a bad name. They're just like not. <laughs> But no, it's great. It's it's and it's great. I love that moment where the two groups meet each other, and it's so funny. But then it actually kind of moves you at the end of the film when they meet back up, and almost all of them are gone. Yeah. You know, it's mm -hmm. like it's so well done. And I love it's like Martin Freeman because I forgot that he has that little cameo, and I was just thinking, oh man, Simon Pegg looks so is like physically so similar to Martin Freeman. And then as soon as that thought crossed my mind up pops Martin Freeman playing mm -hmm. his sort of parallel character. It's, it's so good. Yeah. And um, the woman that he meets, that he runs into Yvonne was in the sitcom that Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost all worked on before this movie. That's so called spaced, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, from yeah. that show um, came the idea for Shaun of the Dead really, because mm -hmm. they had a zombie episode kind of. Like uh, Simon Pegg's character stayed up all night on speed or stayed up all weekend on speed playing Resident mm -hmm. Evil. And then he just hallucinated running into zombies <laughs> throughout the town. Love that. Kyle, I, I like something you said a few minutes ago, too, when you talked about falling asleep to movies and like when you would rent titles, watching them over and over again, like I'm going to get my money's worth out of mm -hmm. this. And I think that in this era where so much is just at our fingertips, like there's 
virtually any movie you want is either on a streaming service that you pay for or you can rent it on demand for like three bucks at this point and in some ways it's i think made a lot of us like lazier movie watchers like it's a lot easier to either a get choice paralysis because there's so much right in front of you and there's technically no end until when you can stop browsing like go into the video store they either a eventually close Mm -hmm. or b your dad is like all right you haven't picked anything get the fuck in the car like we're going home (laughs) so you're just grabbing like another hulk hogan movie off the shelf why am i telling you all my childhood suburban commando (laughs) does feel very specific it does Uh (laughs) but now it's like you have your phone in front of you like it's just you I think it's different engaging in movies now when you're watching them at home than say, you know, even a decade ago when you would rent DVDs still. Oh, absolutely. Like I'm, I was like a special features junkie. Like if I had, I wouldn't like spend money unless I had like, unless like the DVD had like a documentary on mm-hmm. it, you know, three or four commentaries. And uh, this one was like, this was like a perfect DVD. Like the movie is perfect itself. And then the DVD really like went all out. I think mm-hmm. they had, um, what was it? They had a uh, plot hole shorts. So they had these little animated shorts that were like fill in plot holes. Like what happened to Lucy Davis's character after oh. she runs into the crowd, you know, after David is dismembered. Um, what did happen to her then? What I just assumed she got eight. Apparently, I didn't watch it before this, but apparently, if I remember correctly, she runs through, she hits a couple people on the head and kills a, a couple with like one shot with a leg that she has. And then just kind of, they kind of just forget about her and she runs away and then she kind of just lives her life. Oh, good for her. It's, it's, I'm so glad. Yeah. And then like they show how Ed gets into, zombie Ed gets into the shed. Like Sean goes back for him like a couple weeks later. You know, he's going yeah. to like pay his respects and then that's how he gets him. And then. Yeah, stuff like that. Just really stuff that made you feel like you were really um, yeah, just getting the whole package. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really immersed in in the world. I um, I'm curious to to switch tracks a little. How how do we feel about the ending of this movie with Zombie Ed and the Shack and sort of um that whole life that he's keeping a secret from his girlfriend, as I interpreted it. But uh, how, how do we? How do we react to that? I, I, I've never been able to get a grip on on my own reaction to it. Huh. I never, I don't read it as he's keeping a secret. I read it as like she's come to grips that like Ed is going to be a part of their life no matter what. Mm. And that's just where he lives. Like that is just where like, I didn't read it. I just read like their little kiss goodbye. And he's like, all right, going out to play in the shed like she knows like that's where he goes and plays video games with his buddy i never read that as like she was unaware that ed was in there i don't think that sean would do that to liz like if liz ever had to like go into the shed to get like gardening gloves or whatever she would get eaten very quickly and i don't think sean is going to do that to her like um i kind of read it and i had a note here there's like a very thin line between being a zombie and being like a service worker or waiting, you know, just like the day-to-day drudgery. 
that you kind of live through. Um, there's not much of a difference for Ed, whether he's a zombie or whether he's just kind of like a couch surfer that deals a little weed every now and again. Mm-hmm. Not a lot has changed for him. Yeah. And I'm not saying that my interpretation of it being a secret is correct. I actually, now that you say that, it's never explicitly mm-hmm. Stated it was just how my brain read the situation because he says something like, I'm gonna pop out to the garden, like as if he's being a little mm-hmm. um not direct about it. So my brain read that as like, oh, he still has his one little thing that he wants hmm. to keep from his old from his old life. And I, I don't think she would be having it if she knew he was out there in the shed. But but I I mean I could be completely wrong about the intention of that scene. I'm guessing it was played a little ambiguously intentionally, but who can say? Honestly, until this last rewatch, I thought the same thing that he was lying to her the whole time and like she didn't know. But this last time I watched after, I don't know, 500 watches, it was like, oh, she knows because she kind of goes, oh, OK, yeah. fine. Yeah. But before yeah. I didn't, I never I thought it was he was lying. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. It's like how we all bring ourselves <laughs> to the films we watch, you know, Um <laughs> Uh, I I do, you know, the thing you said about service workers, I think that was probably one of the most like grim laughs that I got out of this Mm -hmm. at the very end of the movie when they're doing the news broadcast about how they've like, you know, um, uh, compartmentalized or synthesized this thing that happened into day to day life. And they're just like making zombies into employees at various things. And they all have like the shock collars on or whatever, Um, like with the current state of things being what they are, I felt like that was the most like prescient observation of how the world would cope with like a, uh, an outbreak like this is like, ah, let's just use the sick people or fuck them. They're just the front lines, you know, who cares about them and their, and their life. Uh, and I know it's, it was probably, you know, played a little bit more for broad comedy here because there's a bunch of references to people shuffling around and being kind of out of it. And, zombie like before we even get before to that point starts, yeah 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 um like all the shots of sean's feet as he gets out of bed mm-hmm. and is like you know uh sort of pigeon toed what, what is the word when your toes are turned in it's not duck footed that's out yeah, i think is it, it is pigeon toed pigeon toed i, I don't so. fucking know yeah you get what i'm saying i hope <laughs> One of the things I think really works so well about this movie, like a lot of the zombies you see, you're introduced to them in human form briefly, and they're not much different from when they're reanimated as zombies. Like for the, at the beginning of the movie during the credits, like the young woman that is like scanning the groceries with a blank look on her face, like that is the uh, woman who's in their back garden mm-hmm. after there is the group of young men that are kind of waiting for the bus and they have it synchronized where like two of them are looking down at their paper and two are just staring blankly ahead and you see them reappear later on and kind of what i picked up on this time too is how there's like that slight bit of humanity in these zombies. Like they mm-hmm. retain just a little bit of their um, former selves or like the shopkeeper. He's kind of waiting to get his money from Sean. So when he yeah. approaches Sean, like his hand is out because every time he would see Sean, like Sean's putting, you know, 15 P in his hand to get his paper and his diet Coke. And you have like the dude like walking his dog, like things like that, like Philip trying to shut off the heavy metal. Um, so I like that there's like that little spark of humanity 
that is left in them um, despite becoming zombified. Yeah, that that was definitely like existentially haunting me on this viewing because yeah, just the idea like it's played for really great comedy, but like when Phil the I just feel the need to say his name out loud because it makes me laugh that his name is Bill Nye, but it's spelled differently. Mm -hmm. um, wow, I derailed myself with that, which was not necessary. That he like the you know the, the moment he's like he's gone, there's nothing left of him in there, and then he sh like reaches and shuts out the music. But like that is such a great example of it being like so funny and so sort of unsettling at the same time. And then um, the roommate. Uh, Pete, I think, looks up at the end when they say his name. But that, you know, this, I had never really like focused on that before. But this time I was like, what does it mean? Oh, no. And this like whole existential world of what it could all mean uh, opened up in my brain. But um, I love that because it's just like you could take it or leave it. Right. Well, and I, I like what you're saying there about like what could it all mean rather than just like watching it as like a really fun piece of entertainment. And I think because of the time that we're living in <laughs> yes. particular, this movie hits a lot different. And I know like Kyle, that was something you wanted to speak about. So what do you oh, think yeah. hits you different now in 2022 watching this movie than say the before times? <laughs> Well, this is yeah, like the the beginning of this movie is just big January, February, two thousand or twenty twenty like vibes all over the place. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's kind of doing their own thing, and you're like, oh, there's something going on in the background. I'm just not gonna focus on it, or just gonna keep going and do my own thing. And um, now that you've kind of all collectively lived through something like that, it's kind of it's very, very kind of uncomfortable to watch something pre or post apocalypse. I feel like I was not one of the people that watched contagion when this whole thing started. I was like, I do not want to do that. No. Yeah. I, could this not was like, I think this was the first movie that I've really watched in the last two years that had anything to do. With, and I was just like, I just mm -hmm. was not wanting to experience it again. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like the pre before, I, before the whole zombie thing starts, I was just like, Oh wow, this is really, this is really difficult to watch, but it's because it's a comedy and I know what's coming. I can kind of get through it a little better. Yeah. There, there was one other movie we watched um, with, Oh God, I remember nothing about it except it's that office building where everyone gets like locked mayhem. in as that mayhem mm -hmm. as that rage virus. And that was like one of the first movies that I watched since the Paninis kicked in um, that, gave me those vibes and and what's funny in both that movie and in this movie what really made me laugh in a dark way was that they have a competent apparatus that's there to save them in some form or fashion like in this when the when the military boots hit the ground and they're like don't worry we're taking you to safety i just started laughing like uncontrollably laughing because I was like, this is the least believable part of this movie for me now of having lived through all this, that there's going to be like some government governing force that's going to come in at the last minute and help us out because that's, that's what's broken me most about <laughs> the last few years is like, Oh shit, we're on our own. We got way more walking dead vibes than Shaun of the dead vibes. But um, yeah, that's a really dark thing to say. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, you're not wrong, though. I mean, the thing is, you're not wrong. Like, you 
you watch this movie and you think this is how it could go and everything is pretty much quashed very quickly. Um, one thing I picked up on like watching it this time around was at the outset of the movie, like things have already started. Like Sean looks down at all the newspapers and doesn't quite make the connection, but it's obvious like there's like a flu outbreak or what they're calling a flu outbreak. So things have already started to kick into gear um, before we even know it. Like I think the first real hint you get something is wrong is like that moment where you see the gentleman out uh, opposite the bus snag a bird and go to bite its head off. That's like the first real hint, like, wait a minute, something is not right about this right now. Um, people coughing on the bus. Sure. That, yeah. that was like chills for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know I had that. I was like, Oh, you know, <laughs> Oh man. Yeah, a, I love that pigeon moment, though, by the way, yeah. just the way it's shot and like how the bus comes to obscure it at the last minute. And then he goes, eh, you know, it's just like there there were some things observed about human nature that he got very, mm-hmm. very right. <laughs> mm-hmm. One of the things that hit for me watching this movie is like Sean at that point, he's like 29 years old. And there's like that moment where he and like that 17 year old co-worker kind of like start jarring at one another. And you could easily see that like teen like a decade later being Sean like kind of being stuck in that job that you thought you would take for like a little while to put some money in your pocket and then it's a decade later and you're still doing it and what hit was like how it's very easy in life to just kind of like ignore everything going on around you and the next thing you you wake up and it's a decade later and you wonder where did everything go um And what you see in this movie is like the moment makes the person like, you know, Sean doesn't get everything right. His plan is far from perfect, obviously, although I think you could we'll talk about Ed later on. I think his plan would have gone much smoother if he wasn't saddled with a clown for a sidekick. Um, I've really gone off on Ed, like watching this movie. I'm like, Pete's right, which is (laughs) said from a man in his 40s um but like how the moment can make a person like what sean needed was an opportunity what sean needed was something that was going to allow him to kind of rise to the occasion and be a more like fully actualized person and in our modern lives with like we have way more convenient as bad as things are we have way more conveniences than we ever had we have like entertainment around us 24 7 to the degree that even like the news is made for more entertaining purposes and informative purposes like we cover politics like we cover sports at this point it's like a horse race um and it just keeps everyone docile it makes it so that like you it's just much easier to put your head down bury yourself in your computer or your phone and there aren't these moments, although there should be, where you can kind of rise up and be something greater than you have been. Yeah. I mean, the the unfortunate thing is things don't work like the movies. You know, there isn't like a singular crisis that unfolds or very rarely that you then have to rise to the occasion. And then at the end of it, you're, you've learned something about yourself things just drag on and on and there's so many complicating factors and you know, that that's, that's just what life is really like. But I, I, I did enjoy that as a character arc for Sean 
and the one thing that he keeps from being kind of a like a you know 20 something shithead is his little friendship with poor ed um i yeah i could say a lot about the world but i'm gonna refrain because you'll just hear me sobbing uncontrollably right. by, by in about five minutes so well, let's I think just you kind of just hit it right there where you said well there's usually not like a singular crisis that is going to draw everybody together and i think the kind of day and age we live in right now there are so many crises that hit us on so many fronts that it is impossible to focus on any one thing mm -hmm. and if you try to solve everything then you're going to just spread yourself so far thin that you become non-functional there obviously in history there have been moments of severe crisis where persons have kind of rallied or gathered around one another but now it just feels like there's so much shit hitting the fan so often that you, it's impossible to kind of keep your head above water yeah and i mean information overload is a big part of it i don't think our brains were designed for the internet <laughs> like Agreed. we were not ready to take all that shit in um just to to move us are, are, is there anything else Kyle, you wanted to say on this topic of this theme? A little bit. This is like astrology. I don't know if you guys, I'm not really into it, but there was something that happened. There's something that happens called the Saturn return. Mm -hmm. And apparently around the age of 27 to 29, it takes Saturn 29 years to return to the place where it was when you were born. Mm -hmm. And this is a, the Saturn return is something that happens when you have like people, it's a phenomenon where people, kind of have like their quarter life crisis, right? And a lot of what happens in, to Sean in this movie before the apocalypse was a little bit, watching this time was kind of exactly, was kind of <laughs> was going uh, with what was happening with me in my life. I was around 27 and 27, 29, and I had become, I was just like in a really bad place. And I, that's the time I got sober. Mm -hmm. And it took a lot of different, you know, personal crises to make me get to that point. And watching this, it's like, Sean is 29. I know, I know vaguely what you're talking about. I've heard it before. And I do think, I mean, if you think about it, like 27 to 29, there's the quote 27 club. Right. I do think that, you know, it, it's hard to say. I'd be curious to know um, back into time, depending on life expectancy and stuff, if people reached those kind of crises at different points in their timeline, you know, um, like if only, if you only live to be 35, like, do you have a quarter life crisis at like 15 or something? Right. But, um, that's, I, I just, but I do think it's really great. And I think it's sort of, pre you know, uh, smart that he made Sean this age because Saturn or no Saturn, that is absolutely a time where you start to realize like, oh shit, time keeps on ticket slipping slipping <laughs> slipping into the future you know um i mean yeah just to uh, around that time was when i had a significant relationship breakup and just a lot changed about my life um so i do think it's, i don't know there's there is something cosmic or biological that makes you go ah, around right. that age i don't feel like i've stopped going ah, for the right. past eight nine years or whatever but um yeah. I think it's a thing. What is the 27 Club? 
That's like all the people who died when they were 27, like uh, Kurt Cobain, Amy, Jamie. Mm -hmm. So I think that's interesting if you if you attach that significance to it, because it's just weird that that's when a lot of these sort of iconic, talented sort of um, burning the candle at both end luminary figures burned out. They flamed out for one reason or another. Um, I don't know how much significance I actually attribute to it, but it is interesting. I, I think there's there's something there. It's like you either you either get over it or you succumb to it. You know, you either get over it like Sean does in the end, or you succumb to it and get eaten by zombies. No, I know for me, like this hit when I was like twenty nine, and it's like the same year that I met Claire. We've been together since like two thousand four, and before that, I had like a string of bad relationships, like a few real gut-wrenching ones in my earlier 20s. And I know that like this is like Erickson would call this period in terms of like develop human development, like that intimacy versus isolation, like that period in your like starts in your 20s and goes somewhat your late 30s, early 40s, where you start to become like far more selective about the persons that you are going to like have relationships with, whether those relationships are romantic, platonic, or like very deep friendships, or if you're not able to develop those strong bonds, like isolating yourself. Um, And I think one of the real strengths of this movie is it does show how everybody longs for some sort of connection and whether that is like Sean trying to grasp on to Liz because he's kind of late to understanding it, but realizing how much she means to him or uh, David settling, David being in love with Liz and settling for, I can't remember her name now. Diane. Diane. You know, David settling for Diane and Diane knowing that, but still being okay with it, like coming to terms with it, how deep down what we all want is to form some sort of connection with others. And even um, Phil sort of admitting in the last moment that he just sort of felt like he failed as a father figure to Sean and, and then, you know, his mother, I mean, it's really like, yeah, you could probably do one of those like red yarn maps with all the relationships in Mm -hmm. this movie and how they're all sort of chasing each other. Um, But yeah, I don't. I don't know. I think it's it, so. It's like one of those kind of things where, like, this movie can go down really easily, and and if you don't like think about it too much, you're like, oh, that was fun. And if you really start to unpack and think about the relationships in it, you're like, because <laughs> like the when he has to shoot his mother, for example, like I like I actually like started crying a little bit last night. At, and that actress is so amazing. The way she her she's sort of. Um, repressing her secret, you know, but you still read it on her face over the course of the entire time she's on screen from basically when she loses Phil to when she is reveals to Liz that she's been bitten. Um, She's going on a real emotional journey Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then seeing her transition from, you know, mother and human to, to zombie is really chilling Uh, and poor, you know, I don't know. It's like, it's one of those, it's like, I, it's really good filmmaking that can hit you on both levels like that. Um, Yeah. I think that's why this works as well as it does. And it continues to work like as a movie. Cause like they didn't set out to make a parody, you know, they didn't, they weren't making jokes 
at the zombies' expense. Like everything was, I mean, yeah, they're throwing records at the zombies trying to stop them, but that's you know they don't have weapons at the time. They're just doing whatever they can, but it's not like a. They're not going around making one-liners while they're killing the zombies, um, like a like it would be like scary movie or like uh, yeah or any zombie other kind land of yeah. Mm-hmm. That that felt more like a true like yeah, but scary movie is actually perfect because it's like it's all in service to the jokes. In this, mm-hmm. the jokes are incidental to character development, incidental to the plot. Um, whereas, like if you're a scary movie, you're like, okay, we're gonna do a scene that is basically a sketch, mm-hmm. and we're gonna achieve this punchline, you know. Um, and so yeah, yeah, and it's a, a ser- string of jokes that are in this movie, like scary movie, that are very much of their time. And if (laughs) you go back and watch those movies from like a perspective of not being from that time, you're like, I don't get it. I don't get what the humor is here. Where is with here? Because everything is derived from the situation and because they're fairly universal situations, whether they're romantic entanglements, like being saddled with that deadbeat friend that you just cannot cut yourself off from. Um, or just like having to work like a shitty day at the job and where you clearly don't want to be and where nobody respects you. Um, it's because it's like a universal experience is you will be able to watch this movie 50 years from now and still appreciate how the humor hits in it. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's a perfect blend from like going from the funny to the serious. I think, you know, because like one minute they're bashing a zombie over the head to queen. And then literally the next scene is him having to shoot his mom and it, and they don't both totally work and they both get you in the moment. Yeah. It, it's, if this was in less talented hands, you could see all the places it would go wrong and how you'd be like, Whoa, this tone is all over the place. Uh, you know, it's, and again, it's like, this is what's so great about filmmaking. And, I, and I'll just nerd out about this till the end of my life. It's just how all these things coming together, the music, the camera work, the editing, the performances, the right, just like can affect you like this, you know, I, it just makes me like really happy, you know, cause it, nothing else on earth has mm-hmm. this, you know, has that quality mm-hmm. to it. Um, do we want to, speaking of, movies and all and Edgar Wright's other films uh, I see you have something in here about the three flavors or the Cornetto trilogy would you like to speak to that Kyle yeah we kind of touched on it a little bit at the end with Ed but do these endings in these three movies ruin the character arcs like do that like at the end like Sean he does kind of grow but now he's got a zombie He's still chained, literally chained to his friendship. No, because please actually remind me because I'm like blanking completely on how Hot Fuzz exactly ends other than the mustache guy having uh, his face impaled. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I think it's like, yeah, I can't exactly remember, except that he he might return to being a cop. I can't really remember, but yeah. I think he stays a cop in that little town. In that little town. He's the sheriff, but he's kind of like, I think literally he's getting in his car at the end of the movie and then a call comes over and it's like some kid was either walking through the crosswalk or like jaywalking or something. And he lights the, you know, he puts the lights on and he uh, races to it to like arrest it. And he's like, uh, the guy is, you know, he's like a fascist cop taking over a small town. Yeah. yeah uh, there's a, a well, phrase to be fair. They were all fascists 
killing off like citizens for like really small misdemeanors. That's right? true. Well, yeah, and I mean, but it's I think what you what so you you got to- one fascist group for one. You're changing, you know. Yeah, but you're trading in like a few dozen fascists for one. For one, I feel okay. like you can handle one. I I think uh, for for Nick Nick Angel, um, uh, which I noticed was also the name of the music supervisor in this movie, and I was like, what? Um, the uh, he there's a phrase somebody put online is a c you know a cab stands for assigned cop at birth, <laughs> which is definitely that character. Um, but I think I think what this is doing, what these endings are doing, are, are keeping these films in the genre and the, or to, uh, whenever I say the word genre, I, I think of Alex Trebek and he would always say the genre of, uh, of comedy. They're, they're still comedies because mm-hmm. they're like, okay, we've had all this serious stuff happen. We've had a character arc. Now let's end it with a little bit of cheeky humor. Um, but they're also kind of saying that like, there are some parts of our identity that we can never really shed. Um, because they're just so innate to us. And and at least in this one, you know, I was reflecting on this a little bit last night. Um, like fucking Sean goes through so much trauma in such a short period of time. So like him having this one thing that he can turn to and kind of, and it's almost like he's deni- in a little bit of denial about his friends being a zombie. You know, he's like, I'm still going to get something out of this. I cannot let this one thing go. I had to shoot my mom in the face. I had to kill my roommate. I had to do X, Y, and Z. I saw all these people I know eaten alive. Let me have this one thing, which does to me feel like some kind of genuine trauma response, you know, that I wouldn't um, hold against him, I guess. So I don't I don't think that they ruin the character arcs. I think you could read into them if you want to um, things that are are genuine to those characters. You could also just read them as a flippant comedy ending to kind of keep it grounded in that in that in yeah. the comedic tone. Um, like the end of Saint Maud. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. It's an ongoing thing where it's got a very upsetting ending and. Um, I think it's hilarious. Yeah. So I, I don't think it ruins, ruins the character arcs, but it's, it's the kind of thing where it's like, how much do you want to engage with it as a, as a viewer? But what I love about Edgar Wright is that he kind of allows you to engage anywhere along the spectrum of taking it very seriously to just watching it while eating some popcorn. Yeah. I have, I, I, to build on that, I feel like at the end of this movie, his, relationship with ed now has its place and before the the sean's one of sean's largest problems is his relationship with ed was spilling over into all these other areas of his life and he did not have a handle on it he was so beholden to this friendship that really is a toxic friendship i mean you look at like him always and he even says at one point like i have looked out for you since we were children and all you have done is fuck me over. Like he's just, and even as he's saying that he's more and more dangerous coming towards him and he's oblivious to it because he's so consumed by this relationship with Ed by the end of this movie. Like he's gone on his arc. 
He's grown as a person. He's a more settled, but he hasn't shed like the core things that make Sean Sean. He just realizes that they don't have to be everything that he is. He's in a healthy relationship. And now he has this place he can go to. Ed has his place. He can go out. He can play some games with him. He can say hi and bye to him. And then he can go back to the rest of his life. Um, it is now just one part or one compartment in one part of him. It is not this all in, enveloping relationship that takes over and bleeds into everything he does. So if you're ever having trouble setting healthy boundaries, just chain them up in a mm-hmm. shed, chain, you know, and then you're good. <laughs> so that just also made me when when you said that, Mike, and like I, I flat the ending of the Babadook flashed into my mm-hmm. brain, and I realized they kind of have the same ending yeah. where like you know, oh, we've we've you know gone on this journey and uh, slain demons, both personal and external. And now I just have to go to where I keep the pain or in this case, keep, keep that one little part of myself and feed it and take care of it. Um, but it's kept and it's kept in a compartment. And that right. I do think that's actually a really like important life lesson you learn along the way mm-hmm. um, of how to do that and still preserve yourself, you yeah. know? <laughs> so I just started laughing <laughs> thinking about this in the Babadook as a double feature. Very <laughs> It worked, I know. It kind of works. It could work. <laughs> Why not? Um, can we talk about Sean's plan and Sean and Ed's relationship in relation to that plan a little bit more? Because obviously his plan goes tits up. I mean, everybody except Sean and Liz end up dead at the end of this. But it's not. And Diane. Oh, that's and right. Diane. 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 But Diane makes it despite um sean's idea it's not a horrible idea like we're going to go somewhere that's pretty well fortified there's some food there it's comfortable and we'll all be together and every step along the way he's basically upended by ed like ed crashes the car ed makes the jaguar unusable by instead of instead of just pulling over he decides to do like a fast and furious spin out like ed picks up his cell phone in the middle of a zombie apocalypse and just has a casual like it's comical how terrible ed is and you kind of wonder like why are you just want to pull sean aside and be like let this guy go like you need to let this person go it always infuriated me like um just nick's character assassination by himself uh or uh, ed not nick um throughout this movie because it's like but it's really all there in that like opening scene of his because mm-hmm. like he says he's gonna clean up but then he got bored and he drank instead and then there's more beer bottles on the thing so it's like it's just like most other things in this movie there's a there's a setup early in the in the movie and then the, there's a it pays off in the end with some like a just a little bit of a change yeah, but in the end, Ed sort of sacrifices himself so they can get, you know, I mean, I guess he was yeah. bitten. Yeah. He was he was bitten. He didn't really have a choice. But at the end, he at least kind of like does right by his friends and is like, please go. I'll stay here and distract the zombies or whatever. Um, yeah. And it's like, I, I think it's down to uh, Nick Frost's performance, but I can't bring myself to dislike the character, you know, because, yeah, mm-hmm. because he's just like, he's fucking that guy. Mm-hmm. You know, and he, and it's such a like British archetype too of that kind of like, oh, I might, well, 
uh, you know, just kind of like misfits or something. Um, I, I see this in session a lot with clients where they have that person in their life where every week they come in and they rip that person to shreds. And it's like, okay, well, why don't we talk about how you're going to kind of remove yourself? Like, you know what you need to do. It's like, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. Um, So hence they keep coming back to me. It's like, you know, you probably could stop seeing me or see me less often if you would just get rid of this one super toxic part of your life, right? And unfortunately- I'm sorry, finish your thought. No, it's it's, it's just because unfortunately you can't force a change. You have to be really ready to make that commitment. And and much like, I was going to say, much like it takes Sean- encountering this horde of zombies to sort of rise to the occasion. It also takes that to have him tell off his friend. And it's like, Mm -hmm. you can tell when he blows up at him, that was like the culmination of, of repress, you know, years and years of repressing his real feelings about the situation because he just enjoys spending time with this goofy dipshit. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, and who doesn't enjoy a goofy dipshit, but like, it's, it's clear that like he had so many opportunities to set healthy boundaries and didn't, and didn't, and didn't, and didn't, and it just gets worse and worse and worse until you end up, you know, making yourself known to the zombie horde because you're blowing up at them in front of the pub. Um, yeah, and as far as his plan goes, like I don't know what else they would have done. It's kind of like no matter yeah. where they stayed or went, they probably would have ended up in in some similar circumstance. Um, so, yeah, and like the people they ran into, only the one person survived. Right. So who knows where they went? Yeah, exactly. It's so at it's least like, they got two people that survived in the end. <laughs> yeah, technically they're they're doing better. So maybe his plan wasn't all bad. Uh, I think the important thing isn't whether or not his plan worked for Sean. The important thing was to be able to make a plan. Yeah. And he did it. It's like suddenly he was like, this is going to start my engine and it's not going to stop. Mm-hmm. And he, and he saw it through um, where you get the sense he doesn't see a lot of things through. Yeah. Do we have anything else we wish to discuss about Sean of the dead? I just wanted to say, like, and Larry, you mentioned this in the feelings check, like Chris Dickens, the film's editor, and he would actually go on to win an Academy Award for film editing with his work with Danny Boyle on Slumdog Millionaire. But he is really the MVP of this movie, because between all of those like quick smash cuts that tell like a, a very full story in a few frames, but also the way he's able to call back to certain scenes previously in the movie and kind of show how they mirror one another uh, really makes this film work. I think you get a, it makes it feel lived in. You get a real sense of the time and space they're in, but also you feel like you can understand why Sean would kind of miss out so much of what is going on around him because it just feels like he's living a pretty oblivious day-to-day existence as it is. And the only other note I had was like how just knowing the shopkeeper's name, like, like what him walking into that little like convenience store and knowing the pub owner, like it is one of the things I really like about 
these parts of England. Like it's kind of very similar to where my wife is from, except her town is much smaller. And there's a phantom pooper who someone is going around their village where 70 people live and just pooping in random spots. But anyway, there's always always one. Sorry, I just had to throw that in. Just like (laughs) knowing the shopkeeper's name and knowing like everybody around you, who they are. Like that is, I think, something that especially right now, we are really missing out on like that sense of community where everyone seems to know everyone at least a little bit. Yeah. Um, what you were saying about the, the editor makes me curious, Kyle, I don't know if you, this was on any of the special features or things you've absorbed over the years about this movie, but do you know, I I'm just, and you're an editor as well. Like I, I love when these things happen because you know that it, there had to be so much planning that went into getting all those shots and knowing how you were going to edit it or having a sort of a plan going into it. So I'm kind of curious if you have any idea how Edgar Wright collaborates, collaborated with the editor um, or vice versa. I think you can tell that Edgar Wright really does his homework. He, you know, he writes the scripts with Simon Pegg and I believe he has all those transitions like already in the script before they shoot. Because that's that's not something you can just kind of. Yeah. I mean, you could make that in the edit, but like he's really doing his homework. He's you know those transitions like you have to get some of them. You know, in the uh, like at the end of a scene, the camera's going to go from left to right, and then in the next shot, it's going to go from right to left. You know, so they're doing that on the day. Uh, I think he's. Um, I think he's a really visual director. I think this has the perfect amount of flair. Like this movie compared to the rest of his like filmography, I think this is the perfect right of right. The perfect amount of right. Yeah. yeah. The right amount of right. The right amount of right. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't think it's over. I don't think it's overdone. I think it kind of gets overdone a little bit later, but um, yeah, sorry. I I just, yeah. Brain fart. No, I, no, 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 I agree. I, I think this and Hot Fuzz to me are exactly right. I'm not, I don't love, I mean, I like all of Edgar Wright's movies, but I don't love the others the way I love these two movies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the in, uh, the fucking Michael Sarah one I was just thinking about for some reason and World's End, I don't think can, it's not bad, but I don't think it holds a candle to the, to these two, um, you know, just because this, these, these, those two movies feel like a real expression of, someone's like passion and fresh mm-hmm. ideas and all these things working together. Um, but yeah, I'm always interested in how directors work with the editor, work with the cinematographer. Like I wish I could just be a fly on the wall yeah. for those pre-production and post-production meetings. Like that's the shit I, I would be very happy <laughs> to get to just observe. Is there anything else we want to discuss about this movie other than how fun and awesome it is and how glad I am you brought it to us because man, I haven't seen it in a while and it was fun to watch. Yeah. I honestly just watching Simon Pegg in this movie now. And then, you know, 20 years ago when it came out, it's just like a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Like he was just somebody who vibrated off the screen for me at the time. I just didn't feel like there was anybody like him. He was like, a cartoon come to life mm-hmm. almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's he had such a distinct look and energy. Um, yeah, it was just, it was like, I don't know. Yeah. Everything about this movie is just 
just makes me feel satisfied. Yeah. Yeah. It's really perfect. I mean, it really is as close to perfect a genre film as you're going to get. Yeah. It's, I think we could, yeah, it's, it's like, it's almost so, it's so good that it's almost hard to talk about because you're just like gesturing <laughs> at the television going, <laughs> look, it's really good. Just <laughs> like, go watch the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wish they made more. I wish they together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know World's End isn't, you know, everybody. I I feel like nobody talks about it. I feel like nobody talks about these collaborations anymore. I feel Mm -hmm. like it was such a big moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they've both kind of moved on. I mean, Peg is obviously working all the time. Edgar Wright is one of the more sawed off after directors again between like scott pilgrim which has found its following and like baby driver uh and what he try to think if he has something else he did uh, last, last night, night in soho, soho mm-hmm. yeah. just i need to watch that i never finished it um oh that love- doesn't bode well so, okay i i loved it up until about the last act so yeah okay that's how far i made it up until the last <laughs> act <laughs> so I mean, but yeah, to me that's like that's what I kind of mean is like some of these other Edgar Wright projects don't feel they don't have the the earnestness of these. These mm-hmm. feel so earnest and like an ex- and you could really feel the friendship and the collaboration, you know, like you said, radiating off the screen with everyone involved. It's just like right time, right place, yeah. right people. It's a lightning in a bottle. Um, and that's not to distract from anything else any of mm-hmm. these people will ever make. It's just so rare to get all these things working together at the right time, you know? Yeah, I've heard somebody say, I can't remember the quote exactly, but right by himself, like without Simon Pegg, it's, there's no humanity in his movies. Like, right, Pegg brings all, like, the the warmth and stuff. And because Edgar Wright has all the, like, the technical stuff down, and he's kind of... You can kind of get bogged down in all the make you know getting all those camera movements right you know yeah but the story is not quite that's how i felt with last night in soho up from what i watched it was like there was a lot of technical prowess but they're just the the story that was being told was not mm-hmm. hitting for some reason oh. and on the other oh. end mm-hmm. when sorry when oh, no, simon Pegg and nick frost did paul there was like an energy missing behind the camera. I feel like. I think. Um, what was, was the name of that movie? Click. It was kind of Paul. Paul, as in P A U L, Paul. Mm-hmm. I don't think I somehow completely have no idea that this movie exists. Seth so Rogen I'm... was the alien. Ah. Uh, they did it in between Hot Fuzz and World's End. Like everybody, mm-hmm. and then they were doing that. Simon Pegg or uh, Edgar Wright did Scott Pilgrim. Right. And they came so back together sense. and they all gelled again. And they all gelled again. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. It is interesting. It's like, that's what I mean. Like filmmaking is inherently so collaborative and you can really see when one collaborator or the other drops out of the picture. Like David Lynch is another director. Like he's great, but he works with a lot of the same people over and over again. There is like, there is no other art form that needs so much cooperation and collaboration on, on this earth. Um, yeah. So it's just, it's interesting to me. I, I wish Edgar Wright got to make don't. Oh, 
I love that. So oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah, that's like one of my favorite, my favorite trailer from the Grindhouse trailers. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, I love that. Now I just want to go watch that a bunch. I sometimes yeah. just watch that trailer over and over again because I love it so much. It's just perfect. And, I and it's really got Jason wish... Isaacs in yeah. it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that is our talk on Shaun of the Dead. And we are going to move to our uplifting moment. And this is where we share any grounding, any self-care that's been particularly effective for us recently. And remember, grounding and coping skills are the little tips, the tricks, the mantras, the practices that help us get us through our tough days and our moments. Self-care is anything we do that makes us feel good or makes us feel better. Unless it's, of course, hurting other people. Like if your form of self-care is to like kick small children in the buttocks as hard as you can, probably <laughs> want to change. Are, are you channeling doing. anything personal there, Mike? No, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> I did want to like we went to a haunted attraction on Saturday and the two kids like in front of us were super awful and they were with their family. And at one point, like my daughter looked at me she's like what's wrong and i'm like those two kids in front of us suck just so (laughs) maybe they're listeners uh anyway so definitely definitely listeners um who would like to start us kyle do you have anything sure um this kind of actually goes with the movie discussion but uh earlier today i was watching a special feature from a dvd from uh, land of the dead and it's a mini documentary of when uh, Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright were in Land of the Dead as zombies. And they got to meet George Romero. It's called When Sean Met George. And I hadn't seen it. I This was one of those special features I used to watch all the time as well. Because I was just... It's so... Their enthusiasm meeting George Romero is so infectious. And it's so like... I don't know, it just makes you feel good. If you have a chance, it's on YouTube somewhere, or just go buy Land of the Dead on DVD if they still have it. That sounds awesome. I uh, One of my biggest regrets is I saw Romero do a talk when I was, like, I had to be, like, 17 or 18, and there was, like, a line to meet him. So I was like, eh, I guess I'll just leave, and I didn't go and meet him. So I would love to see that. I just, the thought of those guys meeting George Romero is a... Pure and it's delight. like a mutual enthusiasm. Like George was really happy to meet them too because he really loved Shaun of the Dead. And like they gave him awesome. They gave him one of the name tags. Oh, that's and so then it cute. said George on it from Forey. Yeah. Oh, that's adorable. I love that because mm-hmm. Romero is such a. It just struck me as like an absolute sweetheart. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, as I've referred referenced in previous episodes, I'm just a little stressed out and spread thin at the moment for various reasons but this weekend i took the time to put up my halloween lights um all over my apartment (laughs) at least in the living room area um just because god damn it i'm gonna try to enjoy some of this month if it fucking kills me and it was so worth it because just to like sit down and turn on all the like purple and orange and warm lights and sit there listening to some Halloweeny type songs. I just, I, I, ha- it's, uh, <laughs> I just saw an episode title of another podcast that said, uh, Halloween is millennial Christmas. And I was like, yes, <laughs> I want to just feel the spirit of the season and soak in all the kitsch and 
deck decor and bullshit as hard as I possibly can because this season does not last long enough. No. Yeah, same for me. Um, this weekend, I started to put up like the Halloween decorations outside. Um, bought a few different things, uh, some new things, and I'm kind of going through the old decorations. Like, okay, like what can I get rid of at this point, and what can go up? And you know, we our display will probably be a little bit smaller this year overall, and but we we'll just have like some really nice lights up. We have like a hanging dude from a tree, like an upside down hanging dude with some lights like strung around him to draw attention to it. Some inflatables and then a little kind of graveyard and uh, witches coven scene. So just like really fun putting those things up and getting into the spirit. Like it is definitely, you know, I said this to Claire yesterday when we were out doing our like Sunday morning, go for a coffee and Trader Joe's date we do now and again i'm like the air just hits different in october like you just wake Mm. up and there's that chill to it there's a little bit of gray to the air but there's like so many vibrant colors that are out like things are still alive it's not that winter time like when everything just kind of dies and you're waiting for spring to get here and desperately hoping that you're not going to get you know caught in a blizzard and snowed in uh but now it just feels like so many things i want to do like we took Ada, I took her to her first like haunt of the year. Um, we went to Witch's Wood where they have like, this really fun and it's geared like on a scale of one to 10. It's about a three on the scary scale. Like it's geared towards like younger families and kids. But there's like a fun hayride and then a few haunted houses that you walk through. Like the scariest thing was it was like $16.05 for a fried dough and hot cocoa. Like why the five mm. cents? Yeah, I don't get it. Um but it was just fun. It was just fun to walk through these haunts and be outside and 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 enjoy all this. And I have stuff semi-planned for every weekend of the month. And I just, I don't want October to end. Although I'll say like now through Thanksgiving is the best stretch of the year. So I'm looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah. It's my absolute favorite. And then there's a sharp decline for me. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yep. Well, For some homework listeners, now it's your turn to kind of get in on the fun here. We want to hear from you on the socials over on our Twitter Twitter page and and, uh, Facebook page. We want to know, what are your favorite zombie movies? What are your favorite comfort horror movies? What are you doing to celebrate the spooky season? What are the haunt attractions you're going to? What movies are you queuing up? But most importantly... When the zombie apoc- uh, when the zombie apocalypse hits, where are you holding up? And yes, who are t- you- tell us. And who are you bringing with you? So, I like that go. as a as a homework question. And yeah, yeah please um, send us you know copies of the keys, um, passcodes, whatever else is involved. Everything, yeah, and leave the yeah. door open for us too. Don't lock us out. So, what are we watching next? Uh, well, this. Do you I know? Don't know? You don't, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, re- I was just repanicking. That's why I was like, I was babbling and I was like, oh no, wait, wait, let oh, me shit. see if I can. I'm, I know what we're watching next. So I'm good. It... I know. I know. Okay. Okay. 
No. I'm not telling anyone. This is why we need Jen. No, anyway. No. So <laughs> yeah. what are we watching next, listeners? So this is still our Childhood Fears Month. So uh, last week we talked about It Chapter One, where we specifically just looked at all the losers and what their specific fears were. And I believe like Stephen from Disenfranchise, who was our guest that week, will be on again. But we're going to talk about It Chapter Two and how, so how those childhood fears uh, developed carried over into adulthood and listeners if you're like there is a surprising lack of pennywise discussion when it came to that first chapter you were right but we are going to be talking about pennywise the clown and the nature of fear in that episode so perfect topic for the halloween season and now it's time for the the thing that everybody tunes in for. This is like, from what I understand, I've gotten letters from listeners and emails from listeners saying, we skip all of the movie. We skip the feelings check. We skip the mental health transition. We skip the synopsis. We go straight for the plugs. Yeah. We want to know what you all have to pitch to us right now. Sell us. So, yeah, which I thought was really weird, but hey, what do you know? Um, so, Kyle, tell us a little bit about what you're up to. Well, you can hear me or my work every week on the Losers Club podcast. Um, this week, I have no idea what they're doing. I saw the schedule and I've completely forgot, but it's a good Excellent. one. This entire month is going to be jam-packed with Halloween goodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other side of that i'm the senior video editor at men's health we have a youtube channel and you can check out what celebrities are eating right now and <laughs> what are they eating and how they stay in shape celebrities they're just like us there there's if you want to learn about men and their health um mm-hmm. and, and and kyle do you have a uh twitter handle or any social media handles you'd like people to hit you up on or follow you yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm just at Kyle underscore Orazo. Um, I usually just delete tweets after I post them. So if you want to. The- <laughs> That's the best way to engage with Twitter, just temporarily. Kyle, I have a question. What What's your reaction? Give us your Insta reaction. Like when Mike Rothman sends over the files from the latest episode, like, all right, you know, we got we got a brief one for you today, and it's like a four and a half hour chat. <laughs> I was gonna um, say, <laughs> what's that? What's that look like? What what goes through? You? What do you espouse at that moment? If it's on Sunday when he sends it, I'm like, all right, I can do this. If it's on Wednesday or Thursday, then I'm like, I um, I don't really email him back. I'll just say that. I'll just mm-hmm. get right yeah, back yeah. to it and just give him the work. Yeah. Got it. But I usually yeah. have a good idea of. Of the uh, the length, let's mm-hmm. say before before going into the episode. That's okay. good. No, no nasty surprises. No, <laughs> Laura. How about yourself? Uh, I am sort of on a weird. I'm in a weird relationship with social media and creative projects at the moment, but I am working on a couple of things. They're just nothing is ready for the light of day, and I'm squeezing them in between. Um, you know, work stuff. So I don't really have anything to promote. Uh, uh, you can follow me on TikTok if you want. I about once a month I post on there. Um, I have a lot of funny ideas that I'll probably never get to. Uh, that's at under Alice on TikTok, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-E-S. Once again, because the other handle was taken by me and I can't figure out how to log in. So... That's what I got for you today. Excellent. 
So for me, you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian. You can hear my other show, The Pod and the Pendulum, where we cover horror movie franchises. We just posted an episode on 2017's Leatherface with Rachel Reeves, who's also on the Losers Club and Halloweenies and has been a frequent contributor now to the pod and the pendulum, um, as well as Clayton from the Men Who Like Men Who Like Movies podcast. And we had a really fun discussion on Leatherface that went into things like whether or not uh, Jessica Fletcher and uh, from Murder, She Wrote and Leslie Nielsen's character who guested on Murder, She Wrote did butt stuff in the episode that he was in because my take was that because he was making her breakfast the next day, that was 80s code for, oh yeah, we did butt stuff. Because you couldn't say that in the 80s. Like you couldn't just come out and say it. So like men making women breakfast at their house was code for that i feel like we all knew this in the 80s and that knowledge but yeah we talked about leatherface 2017 as well for a few minutes but mostly jessica fletcher's sexual proclivities is really why you would turn in so if you want all that and more in the pot of the pendulum uh go ahead and do that fine and for this show let's talk to patron so we have a patreon because we're a podcast and all patron all podcasts have to have patreon pages in 2022 um we do have one if you go to patreon.com slash psychoanalysis podcast and sign up today you will not be charged until january 2023 because i think laura kind of hit it um things are a bit stressful and we're trying to find ways to make sure that we deliver a show every week for our audience. And that means like you're the most important part of it. That means the patron page is going to get kind of like set aside for till the end of the year, which means like right now, if you're a patron subscriber, uh, you still have access to almost 40 hours of content, depending on your level. If you subscribe right now to our Patreon page, you will have access to that content and not be charged. So it's a great way to kind of catch up with everything and then stay on as we head in to the new year. And we have some ideas that we are kicking around to make it um, even better content for everybody uh, that we'll be sharing kind of come January. So go to patreon.com slash psychoanalysis podcast and support the show. We would really appreciate it. If you can't do that, one very easy way for you to support the show oh. is to, what did you think I was going to say? I thought you were going to like, if you can't do this one easy thing, what the fuck is wrong with no. you? Like, I thought you were going to start just, yeah. Uh, no, not tonight. <laughs> what you can do that is free and easy and is super helpful is go to, especially Apple podcast and go leave a five-star review um, and a few words, rate, review, and subscribe to us. When you subscribe, you get our new episodes the minute they drop. When you rate and review us with five stars and leave a few kind words, it does help us in the algorithm. It does help people find our show. It helps new listeners come on board. We appreciate that. We just got like a three-star review last week, Ugh. and it was like, you know, like some episodes are great, but there's a therapist on the show and you have to take everything a therapist says with a grain of salt. To which I say, what? of course you do. Like, That's look. the whole premise of the podcast. Like, I don't. 
I think uh, Lisa, who left that review, she's been hurt. People be wild in. Yeah. Yeah, But uh, it's, listeners, I will, and I tell this to my clients, like, I am not the expert on you. Like, you know, I'm here to help, but you know yourselves better than I do. So please take everything I say with a giant, I mean, I'm, I'm out here talking about Jessica Fletcher having anal sex obviously 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 do not pay attention to almost anything i say i am full of it i mean so yeah (laughs) five five stars only please all right you can criticize us as much as you want just rate it five stars that's what matters yeah i feel like i've gotten the brunt of the criticism like you sounds like you need to take a drink that was one obsessive person right. uh, that's obsessed with this idea, but we don't, right. we don't need to, I like Mike look. just sounds ugly and loveless and it's like, Whoa, how are you getting that? <laughs> yeah. From... Yeah. I can, I can hear how insecure and sad Lara is. Oh. Uh, she, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, Lara, it's basically you are the MVP people. Love no, 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 uh, no. I just like the idea that all the reviews get increasingly personal and mm-hmm. like specific right. to us and like hurt deeply hurtful. Right. If uh, I ever see Mike, I'll hit him with my car twice just to make sure <laughs> that I get it. Jen, come back. Uh, Please, Jen, we need you. <laughs> let's, let's plug Jen really quick. Jen, you can hear her on the Losers Club uh, all the time. You can also hear her other show, uh, White Women in Crisis, that she just White Ladies in Crisis. Yes, thank you. You can hear her other show, White Ladies in Crisis, that she does with Joe from Horror Queers and Gina from the Kill by Kill podcast. Who, by the way, Kill by Kill has been killing it lately. Like, their episodes are awesome, and now they're diving into creep show. So listen to those folks as well. They're fantastic. But uh, Jen will be back with us next week, but catch up with her stuff. The interview she just did with the woman who did the Stephen King cookbook is fantastic. It like I'm at the gym and it made me want to just start gobbling like blueberry pie, which is not what you're going to the gym for. Um, But yeah, Losers Club is consistently killing it every week. And we know why it's Kyle. He makes them sound really good. Yeah, Kyle. That's all there is to it. Yeah. <laughs> so, Kyle, we need help here in that regard. We'll talk later. <laughs> um, obviously, as you can tell, you're like, what a hot mess this dude is. Um, all right. On that note, I'm sorry about leaving the review. That's, that's okay. <laughs> that's all we wanted. We got you here tonight <laughs> in this closet. Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> that was the premise of of Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, where like Jay and Silent Bob go and they beat the shit out of everyone that's ever leave, left them a bad review. And <laughs> yeah, I feel right. like they were ahead of the curve when it comes to like podcasting reviews. Anyway, uh, we're gonna sign off now before I get myself in trouble. <laughs> so, we came here to chew bubble gum and take care of ourselves. And we're all All out of of bubblegum. Bubblegum. Bubblegum.
da, 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 da. This is a synopsis. Edit this out.